And it's really the personality drivers of people that create these kinds of schemes. They are very confident in their own ability. They are skilled at the art of deception. The kind of rational behaviour that otherwise you might sort of go through, you don't. Welcome back to the Business Behind Your Business podcast, where we have the conversations to help your business grow and thrive. And we'd like to share our experience, tips, case studies, and lessons learned and warnings in this case, because we're going to be talking to Bruce Gleason from Jones Partners. I'm Paul Sweeney, your host. And look, Bruce has been uh, in the waiting room for many months, but he's been in the waiting room because he's been very busy and tied up with one of his current assignments. And, and that's why we've got Bruce on the microphone because we want to hear from him about some of the lessons learned from his, well, probably his most high profile assignment to date. And that's the Melissa Caddick liquidation. Um, Bruce, welcome back. Paul, it's a pleasure to be back. And I certainly hope in this segment that we're, we're talking about in relation to Ponzi schemes and Melissa Caddick in particular, but really what I'm hoping most importantly coming out of this is to help people um, have an awareness about what they should be looking out for because if through this we can stop one person losing out in relation to getting involved in a Ponzi scheme, then I'll be really happy with that. But it is really important that people thinking about their investments understand what to look out for. Mm-hmm. I think we need to start with a definition of a Ponzi scheme, but where you're coming from, you've, you've been dealing with corporate insolvency, restructures, crisis management, bankruptcies for over 25 years, and you've had some pretty high-impact assignments over that time and worked with some large companies. This seems a little bit different. Yeah, th- this is pretty niche and exotic, I'd almost call it, because there was this scenario where you had a person that was putting themselves out to be a licensed financial planner that ended up not being licensed. This case, this particular matter has attracted such huge attention and sometimes I still wonder why, but classically what you've got is a lady that operated this business in an exclusive suburb of Sydney being in the eastern suburbs and it was the extravagance of her lifestyle and the way that she basically promoted the scheme that I think has got that level of attraction and then there's been a number of other key events that have then continued that level of attraction in this matter. So certainly it is one that for mine has been really interesting to to be a part of and I think the point more importantly is that there's got to continue to be a focus on educating the community around the dangers of Ponzi schemes. Mm. So, okay, so we've, we've mentioned that term a few times, yep. Ponzi scheme. What is what a Ponzi is it? scheme? What is it? How do you know if you're, you're potentially going to get hooked into a Ponzi scheme? Look, it's really just the promotion of abnormally high returns, which then is continually funded by the influx of new investors. And if we just sort of break that down into those two issues, the promotion of abnormally high returns, if we look at the long-term averages across property or share portfolios, you might say that's sort of ranging anywhere from 8 to 12%, um, depending on whether, whether or not you're in property or, or, or shares or a combination of that. So 
Ponzi schemes, by their very nature, tend to offer abnormally high returns, something in the 20s or thereabouts. So automatically, if we just pause there, we say, well, if I'm going to be promised such a high return, what's the risk associated with that? And generally speaking, when you talk to any sort of licensed financial planner, they will tell you that the higher the return, the higher the risk. So, you know, certainly to that extent, that is the first sort of flag to note. And then the scheme itself relies on continually finding new investors to basically pay out the the exiting or the older investors so the scheme can continue on. CADIC was a little bit different because unlike some Ponzi schemes which pay actually pay some kind of monthly or quarterly distribution, what this was all sort of based on is that uh, she would take the monies from the investors or victims, as I call them. She was meant to invest those monies in largely domestic stocks listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. And what she would produce to the investor each month was a ComSec statement showing the increase in their portfolio value. So there wasn't necessarily a payment as such, with the exception that when exiting investors wanted to leave, then she would need to find a new investor to basically pay them out. So that's how in this particular case it worked. But what was really being done was the fabrication of the ComSec statements for each investor to show that their portfolio was growing in value. And therefore, in some cases, people then uh, made further investments because they thought that their portfolio was actually performing quite well. Mm. So we've got a lot of misleading steps in in there, which sort of leads me to ask the question, well, there's a couple of questions I'm asking. Did anybody actually check that she was actually a licensed financial advisor and then checking the validity of the information being provided? Yeah, look, and and that's one of the things, you know, here that there was an AFSL actually on some of the documentation, but if that had been checked, what they would have found is that that AFSL did not actually belong to Melissa, nor was she an authorised representative of that particular AFSL holder. And so, you know, a fairly routine check like that would have at least raised a red flag. But this, you know, presents the whole sort of notion around why do Ponzi schemes get up and running in the first place? And it's really the personality drivers of people that create these kinds of schemes they are very confident in their own ability they are skilled at the art of deception and the kind of rational behavior that otherwise you might sort of go through you don't and so that's how these kinds of schemes get running and then of course because they've got so much trust in that person and that's the whole key with this is that they invest because they trust the person And when they trust the person, some of the other normal checks that one might do don't get done. So one of the the key things I like to talk about is, you know, when you're making these kinds of investments, there are things that you can do, simple things that you can do, such as check whether or not the person does have an AFSL or is otherwise an authorised representative, or, you know, by going to the Money Smart gov.au website which is a very good 
government website that has got a lot of information around scams and just educationally helps people. So I think, you know, some of those points are really valid. And I simply say this to people is if you're about to, you know, park over sort of $250,000, do you not think it's reasonable to go and spend even a $500 or $1,000 to get some independent advice? Because as a percentage of that $250,000, it's an investment, you know, well worth in itself. Mm. Yeah, look, I think a lot of people would spend more due diligence researching the comparative prices of a new TV than their investments. And for a lot of people, 250000 is a large proportion of their retirement savings or their investments. Oh, look, absolutely. And, you know, what you tend to find is that the victims of the Ponzi schemes, they're contributing or putting over that money at a point in time where a lot of them have worked hard to get to that point and therefore the loss of it is not only a significant financial setback, but it's a significant emotional setback. And I think that is really a key point to raise here that, yes, we're all aware of the financial sort of loss and damage that can be caused, but it's it's also the emotional damage that gets caused because they, being the victims, start to then think, well, why did I not spot this? And how could I have let this happen? So there's there's almost a level of guilt And so education and helping people understand where there's resources to go to is important. Mm. And you talk about those, where to go to when things go wrong. And I think it was ASIC recently where it listed all the compensation that has been paid out to people who have used financial planners where the service wasn't what was expected or proposed. Uh, So there's been a lot of compensation paid out to people using financial advisors where the service wasn't up to standard. So if you're not going with a licensed financial advisor, you're not going to get access to any of that regulatory involvement or compensation. That's right. And I think the other thing is that Ponzi schemes know no boundaries in terms of asset classes. I mean, if I sort of looked at just some of the ones in Australia over the last three to four years, they have covered everything from managed funds to shares to crypto um, to private placements to foreign exchange. So they know no boundaries. And I guess the other thing people need to ask themselves, and you made the point about, you know, they spend more time researching a TV. I dare say they probably spend more time on realestate.com.au sort of looking at real estate as well. And just because somebody's offering you an investment in relation to shares or managed funds or private placements, take the time to actually find out about that itself. Don't just say to yourself, well, they seem pretty experienced in that area and they're telling me that you know they've got really good track records. Go beyond that. Go beyond that and, and do some research on your own and try and understand, well, why is it that they're saying to me they can get me 25% when I know the average long-term returns are, say, between 8 to 12%. Understand sort of what it is that they're doing to potentially justify generating 25% and what additional risk are they taking. Mm. Yeah, we've got so much data available to us and some of these searches are very quick to do, but it's a case of choosing not to do them because, you know, if you search in... Um, particularly with a, a .gov.au in your web search, you're going to come up with the government sites or the regulatory sites that are going to point you to some of the right 
places to check these claims. It's interesting, we've been doing some work with our website developer and one of the things they've asked us to do is, um, look, we have our qualifications on there and they're saying let's put links to those actual organisations to prove that you do have those qualifications so the Tax Practitioners Board, mm. uh, Chartered Accountants Australia, um, uh, Institute of Advisors, actually sh- going links to those real organisations to verify that we are actually a member, we do have a current certification and we are registered. And where that's come from is a lot of people dealing with builders and construction industry, seeing a qualification on their website, thinking that's great, but not actually checking if it's a valid or current certification or licence. You're right. And look, many of those links to chartered accountants or CPA or or others, you can actually check that the person is a member of those. So they're really simple and quick checks that can be undertaken. And again, it just comes back to this whole notion that don't feel rushed to get into a Ponzi scheme because that is one of the key factors that you see happen time and time again. And the reason why it happens is that there's this FOMO or fear of missing out because what the perpetrator of the scheme builds is this fear of missing out. Uh, I don't have an opening for you at the moment, but look, um, if I do, I'll let you know. And what that starts to build is, oh, okay, so they, they might have one for me. And then all of a sudden, hey, presto, because an exiting investor wants to get out in a week or two or a month's time, person that was put on hold for a little while gets a call, I've now got an opening, do you want to come in? And there's this recycling then that happens. But really that fear of missing out and therefore making a quick decision without then actually undertaking the research is what tends to happen time and time again in these types of schemes. Mm. And we've been focusing on investments here in Ponzi schemes, and most people would look at that as a personal investment, but there are a fair amount of similar situations in the business world where a smaller business might be dealing with a larger business, offering them a large contract at a high price. Oh, look, absolutely. There are some factors that in terms of how people can sort of move through the decision-making process that you can overlay into the business sort of world, absolutely. And, you know, the example you just gave is a good one because the classic sort of small or family business thinks, okay, well, this this contract from a larger business is going to basically be the thing that sets us up and changes our business direction. But, of course, as we know, what needs to then be properly understood is, well, If you're now going to be dealing with a much larger customer effectively that's going to have the advantage of certain levels of compliance and other things in play, um, how are you going to then basically make sure that you're bringing yourself up to a similar level so that you're not basically the lesser party in that sort of contractual relationship? And, And I think it's one thing to say that, we want to land that big sort of customer or that big fish, so to speak. But we've also seen what can happen when the whole management of that sort of contract doesn't then go well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it becomes distractionary because what initially happens is there's an excitement factor about having this big customer or this, you know, uh, pivotal sort of change in the business. And some of the things that have kept the business going nicely over the 
you know, the last little while are kind of then not given the time, love and attention they still need because you're putting all your focus into this sort of new and, and big fish. But quite often, unless you've then look at the whole business environment yourself and you put resources around the business to make sure that if you're doing that work with that larger client, that you're going to be able to sort of move through it. If you don't do that, then chances are you don't potentially get the benefit of that big fish. Mm. Yeah, and look, there's also some other aspects I think that we do in our businesses before we take on a new client, particularly where there's a large amount of work that's potentially there, is actually checking who we're dealing with. Like we can go to the ABN or ABN lookup and just check that the details they've told us about what their company or business is are valid. They are actually registered for GST. And we even go one step further and do an ASIC and a credit search on our customers. And typically there's no issues, but occasionally we've come across one where the identities of the people that we are actually going to be dealing with are not the people registered for that company. And then also the credit rating for that business is telling us that we're going to have alarms here. And if we want to get paid, we need to get paid in advance. Otherwise, we shouldn't be doing the work. Yeah, look, and that... This sort of brings us back to some of the checks we were talking about in relation to Ponzi schemes and some of these things are transferable and it's actually developing some systems to basically do those standard checks because the one thing businesses and and we're moving into an economic climate at the moment where maybe sort of certain businesses might you know have more of a cash crisis than others and so revisiting what systems you've got in place now to basically check the, I guess, the one of a better term, the integrity of the customer or client that you're dealing with is important because you don't want to get caught in a position where you've then, you know, gone after that big fish at the expense of some of your little fish and then the big fish turns out to be not so nice to eat because you actually haven't done any due diligence sort of before you've gone down that pathway mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so your comment about those checks and and you can supplement those with then sort of doing some other checks on the web then just using other networks to ask around but this also comes back to the point of doing the due diligence not rushing we all get excited, you know, if we're told that we might be about to get something big land on our desk or something of that nature, but you still do need to go back and take yourself through the, the process. Yeah. And look, you've touched on it a few times, like that fear of missing out and that the urgency factor there. And look, it wouldn't be me if I didn't bring in some kind of sporting analogy here. You know, one of the things we do is orienteering where you're running at speed to navigate different control points in the fastest time to beat your opposition. But one of the things that we got shown is that by taking the time to stop and plan what you're going to do, you're actually going to be faster than if you just continually rush forward. And so there's a risk of not taking that time. And, and really when we're in a race situation, we're looking at five to ten seconds and you can redo a lot in five to ten seconds but that five to ten seconds will often save you five to ten minutes so if you spend that extra half hour or one hour researching who you're going to be dealing with it could save you a lot (laughs) we could save you tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars um look i think you know the one thing that 
small or family businesses tend to not have available to them as much as larger businesses is the resources to do that. But I think the key message is, yeah, allocate the time. You may not do the same level of investigation or research that a large business may do because you don't have the same level of resources, but equally it doesn't mean that you can't do some checks as well. And it goes to your analogy. And, you know, it is about having a level of planning and discipline because it will minimise the chances of you then sort of getting caught in something that then requires a lot more effort to basically write in terms of the problem or problems that it's caused. So planning and having time to sort of think about it is really important in terms of some of the directions that small business or family business need to take. Mm. And therein lies the classic problem, though, is that family businesses tend to be so emotionally attached to the business that um, you do need to try and then separate that so that you are making rational and and pragmatic decisions. Yeah, and look, I think, you know, it's easy to say we talk about these dollar figures, but for a small business owner, a $10,000 account that's gone bad has a huge impact. And you've talked not just about the financial impact, but the emotional impact on that business owner and their family. Yeah, look, and I think, as I said, we're moving into a climate where there's going to be arguably a little bit more stress around collection of accounts receivable. We always run on the mantra that cash is king, but certainly it is very much about having a discipline and being able to separate the rational from sort of the emotional attachment that's quite often there in family businesses. And when you find that, you know, a customer that you've worked with isn't able to pay, then that kind of starts to also have a distractionary element for family businesses as well. And it is just about putting in sort of structures and processes that, you know, you follow and there's plenty of guidance around where you can get that. Mm. We're going to put some links to some of those government sites in the show notes for people to look up those sites, bookmark them, and next time you're looking at a new customer or a new investment, go to those sites and and just do some checking about who you're actually dealing with and their credibility. And one thing, Paul, on that uh, you might put in the bookmark is the ASIC site, for example. You know, you can set up company alerts there. So when there's a change in director or other sort of changes to a particular customer that you're dealing with, particularly if it's a new customer or a major customer, little things like that, that the credit departments of larger businesses do and and they get that regular sort of data dump on a regular basis, they are things that can help you become aware of what's happening rather than just rely on a phone call or an email communication. So it's a way of independently sort of getting some other information as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great tips there, Bruce. So key points just in summing up. In relation to Ponzi schemes, the key points are that if you're in doubt, don't do it. That's probably the simplest tip I can give. And There's a second sort of roll-on tip, and that is if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And they might sound very non-financial, but they are two rules that are very relevant when you're assessing Ponzi schemes. And then the third part of that is 
don't be rushed, don't be impacted by FOMO. And that sort of ties back to the first two rules as well. So there will always be a Ponzi scheme out there across whatever asset class you can imagine. Bear in mind, you go back into what it was all about, Charles Ponzi and and others before him, Sarah Howes, around postal coupons and tulips. And I know there's one that I'm looking at at the moment that is in relation to a betting algorithm that supposedly, you know, means that you can't lose. So people keep finding new and different ways of coming up with a scheme that's going to potentially offer abnormally high returns. And even in the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme, you know, and that ran for a long time. And when you look at that, the SEC apparently investigated that on a number of occasions and thought it was okay. But ultimately, you know, when it collapsed in around 2008, it left a massive, massive hole. Mm. It's your money. Take really good care of it and follow those three rules. Fantastic. So, Bruce, thank you for giving up your time. I know you're very busy at the moment. There's a lot going on. And I think, unfortunately, people like yourself are going to be a little bit busier with with the upcoming uh, financial concerns that are happening. We've got the ATO activities, which we'll, we'll get you back to talk about a bit more about what the ATO is doing to enforce some tax collections and uh, the banking situation that has just come to light. Yeah, look forward to that. And I think, look, my final message on Ponzi schemes Follow those three rules. There are good sites that Paul will sort of put in the bookmarks. And certainly if you ever want to have a chat about one that you may be sort of a little bit unsure about, get in touch with a qualified professional. As I said, bear in mind that spending $500 or $1,000 on a $250,000 investment, that's a pretty cheap investment to stop you losing $250,000 at the end of the day. Right. Well, thank you, Bruce. Thank you.